Please remain standing and pray with me. Holy Spirit, come now and fill us, your people, again this morning with the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that the preaching of the Word of God this morning would be used by you to kindle a greater trust and a greater reliance on our Lord, our risen Savior. And Lord, assured in the truth of his living, his presence among us, Lord, send us out to be people who are actively involved in living out the kingdom of God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, some of you were at Easter Vigil last night. Um, we're kind of wrapping up all church, all the time week here at Christ Church. I've gone past the grumpy stage of being sleep deprived, and I'm thoroughly in the giddy stage of being sleep deprived. I was, this is something we hope to achieve every year, and uh, there's just no telling what I will say. So may the Lord have mercy on you as I preach this morning. <laughs> well, the general assumption today in our Western culture is that religion belongs in, listen, in the realm of, the pri of private opinion, a private sphere. We should do everything possible to build up walls as high as possible to keep religious claims from making impact, any impact, in the public square. Religion is not like math or physics or even like current events in the news. Religious claims at best can be true for you, but not for everyone. And at worst, in the words of the late Christopher Hitchens, religion poisons everything. And in our national context, this reference to religion specifically applies to the Christian faith. But friends, I want you to know that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead means that God is not satisfied to remain entombed in the realm of private belief or private opinion. The resurrection means that the gospel is, the gospel is public truth. To say that it should be kept private is like saying that if you discover the cure for cancer, you should just keep that to yourself. And just about the very first thing that Christians did after they met the very real, touchable, living, embodied, risen Jesus was to go to the public square and to start telling everybody about it, even when this was not welcome news. And so in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says this, and as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. Because Yes, I love that. In the Bible, they were annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And as St. Paul famously proclaimed in his defense between, uh, before King Agrippa, <clears throat> he says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, Paul is telling King Agrippa that everyone has heard about the resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't done in a corner. It is a public event. And this morning, I want us to look at two implications for the resurrection being public truth, 
But before we can go there, I need to offer a brief defense for the claim that this really, the resurrection, is really historical fact. You see, the Christian faith is not based, as many people think, on some inner subjective counterfactual emotional experience, but on the truth that God has decisively, visibly acted in history. God has decisively and visibly acted in the same stream of history that you and I are a part of. Peter Bogosian, professor and author of a manual for creating atheists, says that faith, he, he describes faith this way, speaking of Christian conviction, faith is belief without evidence. It's pretending to know what you can't know. But this is a completely fictitious, made up, out of thin air definition of faith. As a matter of fact, this is one that unfortunately many Christians believe. But that is not what we mean by the term faith. Um, it's not like, faith is not what Mark Twain said it was. Believing what you know ain't so. That is not what we mean when we talk about faith. No, faith, the two words, well, faith and trust are the same word. Faith and trust mean the same thing. The two words are synonymous. They're synonyms in the original Greek, pistis, and in the Hebrew Bible. They're synonyms in English. They've always been synonyms. Many times, skeptics say that faith isn't trust at all. It's just deciding you know something when you don't have any reason to think it's true. Well, brothers and sisters, that is just not what the Scriptures and the Christian faith have ever taught. That is an alien definition applied to Christianity by people who have a predisposition not to want to believe it. It's just not what we think. Faith simply means putting, putting, some, putting something at risk based on what you do know. For instance, I am willing to risk letting the bank take care of my money because what I, of what I know about the bank. And even closer to home, I'm willing to risk letting Cornell manage my retirement. Because of what I know about Cornell. That's what we mean. Faith is being willing to risk something because you trust someone or something based on what you know about that person or that thing. Now, I don't have time to do an exhaustive scholarly defense of the truth of the resurrection. First of all, I don't think I can maintain a coherent stream of thought for that long this morning. And if you want that, perhaps the greatest biblical historian alive today, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, has written a little tract, 740 pages long, <laughs> that does just that. So there is plenty of evidence for dead Jesus becoming alive Jesus on the first Easter morning. And I encourage you to do your own research. It's out there. But here are just a few of the things that I find convincing, things that we know that make it worth risking believing that Jesus is alive. And I want to thank my research assistants for this part of the sermon, uh, Tim Wright, uh, Tom Wright and Tim Keller. Uh, they helped me out a lot. If this sounds strangely familiar to you, it could be. 
Look, I haven't had, I've never had an original thought. My entire preaching life comes with one footnote. Ben didn't think this up. (laughs) First of all, one of the mistaken ideas that many contemporary people harbor is that people in the first century were just more gullible, more credulous than we are today. Tim Keller writes, this assumption behind this very common hypothesis is what we would call chronological snobbery. We imagine that we modern people take claims of bodily resurrection with skepticism, while the ancients are scientifically unintelligent and don't know a thing about the world. Let it then be a surprise to you that at the time, all dominant worldviews, talking about the first century, all dominant worldviews didn't believe in anything like a bodily resurrection. They may have believed in a spiritual resurrection after death, but not in the the physical body being raised. So no, brothers and sisters, folks then were just as skeptical as they are today. The reality is that no one, no one, and not a single one of Jesus' own disciples believed that he would rise from the dead. The very reason that the women are at the tomb and the reading we heard Father uh, David read this morning was to embalm a dead Jesus. You don't take the embalming spices to slather over living Jesus. He wouldn't like it. I told you I don't know what I'm going to say. That being the case, it seems unlikely that these first disciples would have fabricated a story that they themselves were not even disposed to believe. Now, the second reason is that there were living witnesses who could refute or validate the resurrection at the time of the writing of the New Testament. Many people know that um, the Gospels are probably beginning to be written down, certainly in the case of Mark's Gospel, around 65 A.D., which would be about... 30 years or so beyond the the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, certainly within living memory of people who were witnesses of that event. But more than that, St. Paul's writings come even earlier than that. So St. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in a letter that we know as 1 Corinthians around the year 50 A.D. And so this is what Paul says in that letter around the year 50 A.D., For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So Paul, as I said, makes this claim around the year 50 A.D. I want you to think about that. That is just about 18 years, 18 years after the resurrection event. That is like the same time span between today and 9-11. Is there anybody alive today who remembers 9-11? Who would have been a witness to that event? Could you talk to them about that event? Could they verify or falsify that event? 
That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the witnesses are out there. You can talk to them if you don't believe me. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And the identity, the identity of who those witnesses are, as related in Mark's gospel, particularly this morning, is also one of the most convincing points of evidence for the resurrection. Celsus, and we mentioned him, I think, just two weeks ago, a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century AD, was highly antagonistic to Christianity and wrote a number of works listing arguments against it. Tim Keller says one of the arguments he believed most telling went like this. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection were based on the testimony of women. And we all know women are hysterical. And many of Celsus's readers agree. For them, that was a major problem. In ancient societies, as you know, women were marginalized and the testimony of women was never given much credence. Do you see what this means? Keller continues. If Mark and the Christians were making up these stories to get their movement off the ground, they would never have written women into the story as the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' empty tomb. The only possible reason for the presence of women in these accounts is that they really were present and reported what they saw. The stone has been rolled away, the tomb is empty, and an angel declares that Jesus is risen. And speaking of witnesses, there were people willing to die for the testimony of the risen Christ. One author writes, and as Pascal puts it, Blaise Pascal, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Virtually all the apostles and early Christian leaders died for their faith, and it is hard to believe this kind of powerful self-sacrifice would be done to support a hoax. So I'm firmly convinced for this and a myriad of other trustworthy reasons of the historical validity that dead Jesus came out of the tomb in a body as live Jesus on the first Sunday morning. And the resurrection is thus public truth. And as public truth, it has public implications. And the first one is this. It means that God, since Jesus bodily came, not spiritually, ethereal, semi-transparent Jesus with real floating action. <laughs> no, I'm talking bodily left footprints out of the grave Jesus, Easter Sunday morning, means that God cares about this material world that you and I live in. This world matters. The world that you and I live in matters. It is not something just to be escaped from. It is vitally important to God's perfect plan of creation, redemption, and consummation. Again, N.T. Wright, uh, one of my other helpers in writing this sermon. If you've got guys like N.T. Wright doing your research, you can't go wrong. He says this, and this is actually from one of his Easter sermons. He said, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. 
If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. By the way, if Jesus Christ is really risen from the dead, guess what? That means it's pathetic to be spiritual but not religious. I'm just spiritual. Well, that just means it really doesn't matter. Just floating around ethereal. I told you I'm not responsible for what I say this morning. (laughs) I'm ad-libbing. It's good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world of injustice, violence, degradation, and in, uh, that are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things, and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Take away Easter, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of the material world. Take away Easter, and Freud was probably right to say Christianity is wish fulfillment. Take it away, and Nietzsche probably was right to say Christianity was for wimps. See, as, pro- as public truth, the resurrection means that believers are mandated. We have a mandate to bring the gospel into public discourse and to seek to see it influence our common life together as a society. Now, I was talking with a family member about a year ago uh, asserting these, that, what I just told you, that Christian claims and views have a place in our public discourse at every level, including the political level. And his response was, well, ha! We know how that turns out. What do you mean? Well, you see, for him, in his mind, he was saying that Christianity, just like in the documentary, The Handmaid's Tale, is the short track to theocracy and abuse. That if Christianity enters the public square, the next thing you know, the Ayatollahs are going to be running the country. But we are not talking about theocracy. And to make that jump is just intellectually lazy at best, dishonest at worst. We're saying that God, what we are saying is that a God who has acted in history might have something to say about society. And we do know what happens when Christians do not bring their faith into the public square. I talked to my friend Art Going this week. Art Going was, uh, he's a canon for our diocese. He's got a special job that he does in leadership development. Art was a theology student in Germany back in the late 1970s. And one day, one of his professors, who was a Lutheran pastor, obtained permission for his small class to visit Albert Speer. Uh, and to have an interview with Speer. Now, for those of you who don't know, Speer was an architect, and during World War II, he was Reichsminister of Armaments and War Production for Nazi Germany. During his trial in Nuremberg in 1946, Speer testified, I belonged to a circle which consisted of other artists and his personal staff. If Hitler had had any friends at all, 
I certainly would have been one of his close friends. If Hitler had had any friends of, at all, I was certainly one of his close friends. Speer served 20 years in prison for his involvement with the Third Reich. Well, during the interview with that theology class, most of the students talked with Speer about architecture. And towards the end of that time, Art got up his courage to ask this question. Herr Speer, I know that you studied theology in your early life. Did at any point, did you have a conversion experience? Well, the old German drew himself up and in a very stern and patrician manner declaimed, religion is a private matter. Well, brothers and sisters, I wonder if Speer and others, if they hadn't confined their faith to the private sector, how would that have affected Germany's descent into Nazism? We do know what happens when Christians keep their religious convictions out of the public square. Now, the resurrection is public truth with, this is the second implication, with personal, not, but not private, implications. The resurrection has personal, but not private, implications. The first and most obvious is that I am invited personally to share in Christ's victory over death and to become a partaker of the life that is truly life, life that will never end, but just get better and better as the ages roll on and on. Leo Tolstoy wrote in his work, uh, essay called A Confession, he wrote, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the very verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without the answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can only be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Well, Tolstoy eventually found that since Jesus Christ is risen from the grave, life does have meaning and significance that that death cannot destroy because we are invited to share in Christ's resurrection when we accept him by faith. That means that now death does not annihilate all of what I have experienced in this life. In fact, all I'm doing is laying up treasure for heaven. The things that are, are godly continue to be a part of my existence in the kingdom that God is bringing in, the new heavens and the new earth. And the things that are wood, hay, and stubble, well, they're just burned up. But there's a lot that keeps going and going as the ages rolls. And that means also one personal implication is this. Listen, it means that the struggles that I have in this life are not the final word. The physical ailments I have, the disabilities I have, the besetting temptations to sin that I experience, my predilections to addiction, these struggles 
do not define my life. They do not have the final word because Christ is victor and he brings life out of my death and one day brings me to perfection in his kingdom. And finally, the resurrection is a source of personal courage. I can face anything because Christ has taken the worst for me already. There is nothing that you and I can experience, no matter how traumatic it is, that can crush us if we rest in the resurrection of Christ. Ugandan Anglican bishop Festo Kevin Gary gave this account of an execution by firing squad of three men from his, uh, from his diocese. The year was 1973, and perhaps some of you remember it was the uh, terrible times of the rule of Idi Amin, Dada Ume, in, in Uganda. February 10th began as a sad day, he says, for us in Kabali. People were commanded to come to the stadium and witness the execution. Death permeated the atmosphere. A silent crowd of about 3,000 was there to watch. I had permission from the authorities to speak to the men before they died, and two of my fellow ministers were with me. They brought the men in a truck and unloaded them. They were handcuffed and their feet were chained. The firing squad stood at attention. As we walked into the center of the stadium, I was wondering what to say. How do you give the gospel to doomed men who are probably seething with rage? We approached them from behind, and as they turned to look at us, what a sight! Their faces were all alight with an unmistakable glow and radiance. Before we could say anything, one of them burst out, Bishop! That's my only Ugandan accent for today. <laughs> Thank you for coming. I wanted to tell you, the day I was arrested in my prison cell, I asked the Lord Jesus to come into my heart. He came in and forgave me all my sins. Heaven is now open and there is nothing between me and my God. Please tell my wife and children that I am going to be with Jesus. Ask them to accept him into their lives as I did. The other two men told similar stories, excitedly raising their hands, which rattled their handcuffs. I felt that I needed, what I needed to do was to talk to the soldiers, not to the condemned. So I translated what the men had said into a language the soldiers understood. The military men were standing there with guns cocked and bewilderment on their faces. They were some, so dumbfounded that they forgot to put the hoods over the men's faces. The three men faced the firing squad standing close together. They looked toward the people in the stands and began to wave, handcuffs and all. And the people waved back. <laughs> then the shots were fired and the three men were with Jesus. We stood in front of them, our own hearts throbbing with joy, mingled with tears. It was a day never to be forgotten. Though dead, the men spoke loudly to all of Kigezi district and beyond, so that there was an upsurge of life in Christ, which challenges death and defeats it. The next Sunday, I was preaching to a huge crowd in the hometown of one of the executed men. Again, the fill of death was over the congregation. But when I gave them the testimony of their man, 
how he died, there erupted a great song of praise to Jesus. Many turned to the Lord there. The personal implication is that we can face this world and all that it has to throw at us with unimaginable courage. That we can wave at the crowds as we stare our executioners in the face. Because Christ is risen, truly risen. So this is public truth. It is not done in a corner. It belongs in the public square. And brothers and sisters, go out from this day willing to live out the truth of Christ's risen life. Do not be intimidated into silence. We don't have the cure for cancer. We have the cure for everything. God is bringing a whole new heavens and earth to be. And the very first step in that is that he has turned death back on itself. Christ is risen from the grave, and we share that victory with him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.